You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 101 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Christmas everyone because it doesn't matter if you are a Christian a Muslim or a Jew or a follower of the great spaghetti monster in the sky Christmas or Christ mass is the mass for Christ and Christ is the light that's at least in my opinion that's what uh, that word symbolizes regardless of religion So Christmas is the mass for the light. And the light is always worth celebrating, especially if you live in the part of the world where darkness rules this time of year. Okay, so let's get into this week's episode. In this episode, my guest is alchemist and author Mark Stavish. And among many other things, Mark is the director of studies for the Institute for Hermetic Studies. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's my pleasure. So could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, my name is Mark Stavish, and I'm the uh, Director of Studies for the Institute for Hermetic Studies. And uh, we're an organization here in uh, the United States on the East Coast, northeastern Pennsylvania to be exact. And we offer seminars and workshops on a variety of uh, esoteric topics. Uh, some of your listeners may be aware of uh, some of the books that I, I've authored. Uh, the Path of Alchemy, uh, Kabbalah for Health and Wellness, uh, free, one on Freemasonry, and also Between the Gates, Lucid Dreaming, Astral Projection, and the Body of Light in Western Esotericism are the main ones, but there's probably another 15 smaller specialized ones behind those. And my works have been translated into French, Spanish, Portuguese, Polish, Russian, and Estonian. So they're doing fairly well uh, in uh, Europe, in Eastern Europe in particular. So I'm quite happy. People who are interested in alchemy, they are usually in three different groups. One that's only in the lab, one that's about spiritual matters, and then you have the third one which is doing a bit of both. Where would you class yourself? Well, a little bit of both, because I, I don't think you can really do real alchemy just in the lab. Otherwise, there's no feedback loop developed. There's no as above, so below. It's just uh, as below. <laughs> and uh, so you have to recognize that there's this continuum that you're working on from the very dense to the very subtle. Um, and that also involves not only the matter without, but the, the matter within, literally your physical matter of your body, but the contents of your mind as well. So um, 
you know, alchemy is a very complex subject. And yet at the same time, it's very simple in that regard. How did you get into alchemy from the beginning? Oh, that's a kind of a funny story. Uh, originally, I wanted to go to um, the alchemy courses that they had at that the Rosicrucian Order Amor held in San Jose, California. And uh, I had arranged to go to them in the, geez, I think it was the mid-80s, early to mid-80s. And the folks who were teaching was Russ House and Jack Glass. I had signed up. I was ready to go. And word came out they weren't teaching that year. Someone else was. And that was fine, but I didn't know this fellow. Later on, I found out he was quite competent and a very good fellow. Um, but those two stuck in my mind. So I didn't go. Uh, the class, I think, may have been suspended for a few years, but I don't remember because I wasn't following up on it. And then uh, my wife and I are in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and I, I noticed this ad in the back of Gnosis Magazine for the Philosophers of Nature, LPN actually, was undergoing the French name, LPN, uh, USA. And I wrote to them there in Colorado, and I got on their mailing list. And then I get this notice, that a uh, few notices, but then I get one that, hey, lo and behold, these guys, Russ House and Jack Glass, are going to be doing a, a week-long uh, class on spagyrics for two hours a day at this seminar for the philosophers of nature. And of course, uh, the founder, Jean Dubuis, would be there. And I had no idea who Jean Dubuis was, but yeah, you know, I was going to see Russ and Jack. And uh, I went there, and uh, that's how it all started. And that was uh, late 80s, early 90s. I had earlier tried to go to uh, Frater Albertus's course, by the way. But when I wrote to them, and I have a letter around here somewhere, I got a letter back that, well, he had died a year earlier, and they were somewhat in disarray. So I, I tried to cover all my bases. But back to you. For those who don't know, who is this uh, Jean Dubois or Dubuis? Well, Jean Dubuis is uh, the founder of the Philosophers of Nature, a French alchemical society that uh, also uh, got picked up and brought over to the United States by a few fellows. I, I wrote about it somewhat in detail in a paper I have online, The History of Alchemy in the United States. And I think in an article that I wrote that was picked up by uh, some of the larger magazines. And uh, I think that's online too at the Institute for Hermetic Studies website, Alchemy, just not for the Middle Ages anymore. Uh, he was very big in the French Amwork uh, for many years. And of course, in the early 70s, he, he resigned and left and uh, just dedicated a lot of his time to teaching alchemy as well as uh, some Kabbalah and ritual magic. And um, really, almost anyone who's working with alchemy today um, is probably working off the materials that that organization put together to some degree. Not everyone, but quite a few. Are you yourself a Rosicrucian or a Freemason? Well, I was in many, uh, well, not many, but several Rosicrucian organizations. I, I did fairly well for quite a long time in Amwork. My family was in it going back to the 20s, you know, so, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed it. In fact, I'll be going up to speak at the 100th anniversary of Johannes Kelpius Lodge in Boston next year. Uh, so I, I do have a certain appreciation for what they had to offer. Uh, I am a member of, uh, uh, you know, the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania, a member of you know, Freemasonry. I've gone through York and Scottish Rite, and uh, it's a worthwhile organization, although American Masonry is really somewhat different than European Masonry in a lot of regards. So it's a fine organization. But uh, What's the difference? 
American Masonry tends to focus a great deal on fraternity and charity. Uh, so you don't have a lot of um, a lot of folks coming looking for esoteric content and they don't get it. And that makes them very disappointed. Although there are esoteric lodges, mostly traditional observance lodges and philosophical lodges that are uh, sprouting up under the uh, careful and watchful eye of various grand lodges. There is a degree of elitism in Europe with with the lodges where like uh, some lodges like the the leader of the lodge is the king of the country or like it's very you know they not wouldn't allow you in that easily you know so but whereas I know because I have friends in America who are in like these small lodges and it's anybody could join as long as I guess they know somebody who who is already in it in it. And even if you don't, you can petition, although generally you join a lodge where you know someone. It tends to be the way uh, things go. But I think the elitism is uh, is tricky. I mean, you want uh, a certain high regard for, for what you do. Um, one of the problems with American masonry is it is so open-door policy that uh, many of the men don't even understand what they're doing. Again, there's a great deal of emphasis on charity and fraternity, which is very good. But there's not a lot of emphasis at all on philosophy or what we would think of as esotericism or understanding what the symbols and rituals mean. Uh, that doesn't happen. And that's unfortunate. But again, you know, we do a lot of good work, too. Uh, as far as European masonry goes, there are many, very many variations of masonry. Some some countries even have more than one Grand Lodge because they have different rights. I think there's three Grand Lodges in Germany, but. But uh, that said, elitism there can also be a downside because uh, it gets too socially stodgy and stuck. Thinking that, uh, again, uh, social status is what you're after. And that, impl and that implies a certain esoteric knowledge rather than the actual individual themselves and what they bring to the organization. So if somebody wants to have more esoteric knowledge, you think it's better they try to join uh, a Rosicrucian order? Oh, most definitely. However, again, there are some good Masonic esoteric groups out there. I'm just not familiar with all of them, okay? But they are there. But uh, you'll get more direct information from the different Rosicrucian groups. They tend to be more, that's their focus. That's their reason for being more directly stated. It's not so common these days. I think it was more like 15, 20 years ago when you surfed the web. The The root of all conspiracies was Freemasonry. Nowadays, it's kind of shifted to some sort of oligarchy, elitism. This is what those conspiracy theorists are saying. Uh, but do you remember this, that like it came up more often in the old, uh, like a decade ago, but not? it's kind of like died died away i think in a way well i think so and part of that is because of the the, the what i just talked about particularly with regards to anglo-saxon masonry okay american canadian to some degree you know british and australian new zealand that it is a very blue collar masonry okay uh the average age is often 65 in a lodge uh and of course you know when you have a bunch of well-meaning and uh, very pleasant uh, uh, retired plumbers in your lodge, uh, that doesn't lend well to the idea of international conspiracy. Uh, it just doesn't work. 
when you see a lot of lodges closing down for lack of money, you know, that doesn't fit the, the myth of Masonic conspiracy. And of course, people always say, well, you know, you're just in the lodge. You don't really know what goes on in the Grand Lodges. But actually, we do. You know, we know, we find out, we hear bits and pieces, or we see the records that time. So, you know, stuff, you know, that whole idea of conspiracy, of course, it, it's been tried so many times, it no longer works with Freemasonry. So what we have to do is dress it up, and we change it, and we call it the Illuminati. Now it's no longer Masonry, it's the Illuminati. Now it's the Illuminati are, you know, ruling with oligarchs. Whatever it is, somewhere, somehow, someone has to create and give a name to this thing, which they believe is the source of all their problems. Instead of looking at the, what them they selves allow happen, you know. that's true, or or what they're letting others do to them. Europe is run by you know a bunch of unelected bureaucrats. You guys let you you guys did that to yourselves. You know, over here we we are we're being run by. <laughs> look at our look at the choices we're being given. Okay, for. For politicians, for leadership, I mean that's we do that to ourselves. You know, people have to start taking responsibility for their actions, and most of it comes down to the idea, both in Europe and here, of something for nothing. That you could actually get something for nothing, and that's the same way in esotericism and occultism. You know, you see the same problem at work. Many people often come to it looking to get something for nothing, or to bypass nature. And the reality is we call it the great work. It's the big. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of effort. It's not the big easy. It's the great work. The great work of self-realization, self-understanding, self-expression. That's why it's not for everyone, because many people, that's too much. So esotericism in itself is extremely elitist. Now, but it's an elitism formed by individual effort, not by social class or anything of that nature. And for, because uh, esotericism has for so long been linked to different uh, to different fraternal movements, Rosicrucian or Masonry, often people confuse the two. They confuse social elitism and economic elitism with spiritual elitism, genuine elitism of effort, of expression. I used to like a decade ago I used to didn't I didn't understand uh, the need for secrecy and I thought that all knowledge should be free as I become you know had more wisdom and more knowledge I realized that it's not that it needs to be secret it's just that what is no is for me it might not be good to say to somebody else because it might not do them any good because they're not me well, there's, there's yeah, several truths that work there. And, you know, one of them is as we grow up, you know, I mean, it's it's the joke. Uh, I think Winston Churchill said, never trust anyone under 18 who isn't a communist and never trust anyone over 18 who is. And, you know, the idea being that it's really a great idea when you're young and immature. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with age. That has to do with attitude, emotional and intellectual attitude. To believe that everything should be free because there, there's the belief that there's something is free and there isn't 
Everything has a cost associated with it. Everything. This interview has cost. My cost, your cost, our time, our effort, our wisdom and knowledge that someone is going to have access to simply because they were able to tune in and hit the play button and listen. But they don't get the decades of effort that went into my being able to distill this down for them. Or for you, you know, the hours it took to learn to use the equipment you use. Or to ask the right questions. So in a way, we create this myth. And not even a myth, we create a lie. The lies of, you know, spirituality is free or should be free. It's not and it can't be. You, you as an individual have to sacrifice something in order to walk the path of return. Even if, you know, no, there's no way around it. And then you have the notion of to tell someone a truth before their time is like telling them a lie. I mean, not all truths are good for everyone. I mean, that's kind of a holdover from monotheism. You know, the idea of one true way. And, and you see that in a lot of folks, you know, a lot of so-called liberal folks who have a very one true way-ish view about occultism and esotericism or neo-paganism. You know, very un, un, unwielding, uh, ununderstanding or forgiving for the fact that people can be very different and have very different spiritual needs at different phases and times of their life. We have to be very open to that. And that, that's a difficult thing to juggle. Do you, how do you view this thing that for anything to be alive, something has to die symbolically and uh, physically and, you know, this energy of uh, give and take? It's just what happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if I eat fruit, I'm still killing a bug somehow. I was out picking raspberries yesterday. The weather's been fairly warm, you know, so my raspberry bushes are still producing. Now, there's ants on them that I blow off. Sometimes ants that I pick off. I mean, I mean to, but, you know, that ant dies one way or the other. And, you know, my dog, uh, she's a natural-born hunter. She gets bees, snakes, grasshoppers. She's a wonderful animal, but she'll take a bird right out of the air. You know, she's chasing the rabbit earlier today, wants to get that rabbit. Why? That's her instinct. That's her nature. Uh, we as human beings uh, are very fortunate that we are able to make to some degree choices, but we often forget that life is a matter of continuum through different scales and that um, death is part of that. You know, death is an aspect of life. It's a breaking down aspect of life. All there is to it, and alchemy takes advantage of that. Alchemy uses that, as do other esoteric practices. Isn't alchemy a sort of uh, celebration of death? I mean, like the phoenix rising from the ashes and the uberus, the circular aspect of things. Well, we call it a celebration of life, or that life is everywhere and in everything in some degree, imperceivable. On a variety of different levels, that there is no end, so to speak, no permanent uh, terminus or terminal of our existence. That is why you know we do the transformation on on physical things, but it's the transformation within ourselves that matters most. 
the emotional and psychological transformation that allows us to maintain a continuity of consciousness, uh, both while meditating and sleeping and dying. It's that continuity of consciousness that is uh, truly eternal. And, and it's that continuity that also allows them for the manipulation of matter. Because now we're looking at thought, word, and deed, or body, speech, and mind as being synonymous, as being one, rather than separate functions or aspects. That's why it's very important to focus on the material aspect of this work, and not just the so-called spiritual, because if you focus only on the spiritual, you tend to become dry and lifeless, and uh, induce a variety of psychological and neurotic behaviors that are unhealthy. So could you give like a, a metaphor or an example of how you could work with it practically and also spiritually at the same time so people can understand? Oh, sure. I think plant work is the best thing, by the way. Anyone can do some work with plants. There's spagyrics. And that's where my book comes in. It has a lot of spagyric work in it. I'm sure there's other works over there in English and French and German uh, that that your you know listeners can get a hold of. Um And what you do is you work with the plant, and then the plant has uh, an affinity for a particular energetic quality. We call that the doctrine of signatures. So say uh, eyebright is given to the sun. So you might work with eyebright uh, during the day, during the first hour of the day on Sunday, which is ruled by the sun as well. And you might look at where those energies relate to yourself, what relates to you as the solar aspect. Well, for most of us, we consider that the heart. The heart is solar. The vision can be solar too, but the heart. And that's where we begin to formulate these very, you know, subtle but somewhat complex meditations. The energies within, the energies without, the energies all around. The energies within, my heart. The energies without, the plant. Energies all around, the solar energy that's ambient everywhere at all times. And then we look at what does the sun represent in us psychologically. And I, I don't like that word, but we're going to have to use it. Well, it represents myself. What is my sense of self? My, my we call it willpower, but what is will? But just my energy of life. And how does that expand and increase and do so in a harmonious way? That's why the plant's uh, uh, eyebright is very good for uh, clairvoyant vision. Not psychic phenomena, but clairvoyant vision or clear seeing. Opening intuition. Direct perception. Do you see, you know, you've uh, worked with alchemy for a long time. I mean, it's hard. You can't go back and... Live, relive your life, uh, what is done for you as an uh, individual? You know, I, I think that, you know, what is done for me as an individual is, is just very simply help me re- recognize that spirituality is not a mental phenomenon, as so many would like to present it as, but is a all-inclusive activity or perception that involves the physical world as well. And, you know, our physical bodies as well. We tend to be very uh, somophobic, you know, body fearful in a lot of Western practices, focusing way too much on the head, 
in terms of light, light, light perception, and maybe the heart, you know, you know, some kind of uh, agape or spiritual love. But uh, there tends to be a negation of uh, the physical world, despite what the hermetic texts, texts say to the, to the contrary. I like the, some, some indigenous cultures, they use their own body as a sort of laboratory where by dieting certain plants, they achieve different effects. Uh, and it's true, like if you, you know, stick to a certain diet, it does change your, your mood or behavior. I mean, if you only drink coffee and that's it, you know, you're going to behave in a certain way, but that's an extreme example. But you know what I mean? Like, I like this thing of also using the body as a, because it is a sort of machine and how you treat, how you oil the machine will affect all parts of the machine. Well, you know, the body is an alchemical machine. It really is. And that's what we have to understand. Otherwise, there's no reason to take these uh, spagyric products or these mineral products that we make. There's no reason to consume them. But the body, unless it's because it's going to have an effect on the body that will then have an effect on the energies that will have an effect on our awareness. And the loop continues. And so the body really is an alchemical machine. And Paracelsus is quite clear about that. Do you think that those alchemists to chase to manage to make like this elixir of life and be able to live forever have if that's possible or if they've misunderstood the concept well we have a variety of stories across cultures about long life you know and the, one of the reasons you look to live long is because this work takes so much is so difficult um at the same time you know you look at when they were doing this they didn't have access to a lot of the health care that we do So it's not simply a matter of, you know, do I get the elixir of life and live to be 150 or 200 or 300 or 500 or 1,000? You know, it's a matter of, you know, how long do I, how well and how, how well do I live and how long do I live so that I can express myself? Self-awareness, self-expression, self-realization, they all go together. And the great work is about that, self-awareness, self-expression, and self-realization. So the elixir of life is a means of allowing us to do that, continue that work, that process. And how would you view this uh, goal-chasing aspect? That's, is that the same thing? Well, yeah, everyone's different. You know, the, the notion of transformation is essential. It allows us to understand that we actually have achieved something and aren't fooling ourselves. You know, we used to say that alchemy was the only path in which there was no self-deception. Now, it's very easy to deceive yourself when you're doing various magical acts. It's very easy. Very easy to deceive yourself uh, about what you've actually seen or experienced in various types of psychic phenomena. But in alchemy, either you've transformed something or you haven't. So the quality of the transformation, the aspect of the transformation, is kind of is a signpost of achievement. Something that's become very popular in recent years is this Ormus thing. Would you consider that to be have anything to do with alchemy, or is it something completely different? I know nothing about Ormus. Uh, I get asked this a lot, and uh, from what I understand about it, which is very little, it is not an alchemical product. I've never taken it, and I've never made it. How do you view afterlife 
and God, if you have any such concepts? Well, in Between the Gates, you know, he talked about the continuity of consciousness and how does that take place. Uh, meditation is the foundation of that. And then lucid dreaming and astral projection, as we call our out-of-body experiences, are the, are the fruit of it or, or should maybe just the stem of it. But how we maintain awareness after death appears to be the key. And for that, we have references to the formation of what they call the body of light or a vehicle, if you will, for the continuity of awareness or consciousness on some level. Um, this seems to be the only genuine immortality. If we look at any of the different systems, Eastern or Western, I don't know about others, but at least the few that I'm familiar with suggest that. And we see that even in the classical writings. So really people need to work on their meditative practices and on their, if we want to call their psychic practices as involving out-of-body experiences and the body of light for, to get a taste of what's to come. You know, as you said, you were in some lodges and they usually always, you know, they have this, as far as I understand, this great architect, which is another name for God, I guess. And it's all different in... Like in Muslim countries, the Masonic Lodge would be Allah, but in America, I guess it's the Christian God. But how do you see it? Well, in Masonic Lodges, each Mason takes their oath and obligation on the sacred book of their choice. So there is no defined deity. The grand architect of the universe, you know, is kind of viewed within Masonry as just that, the architect of the universe. But you can be in any lodge and take the oath on any sacred book you choose. Uh, there is a tendency for different lodges to perpetuate the idea of, uh, you know, there only being, we'll say in the United States, maybe the Bible, because that's been the most common one for so long. But that's not true, because, of course, if you were Jewish, you would also then take it only on, we'll say, the Old Testament, right, or the Torah, okay? So... Um, that said, each person defines for themselves what that is, the grand architect and their own uh, god of their understanding, if you want to call it that. Oh, that's interesting, because in, uh, in the Scandinavian lodges, uh, you have, it has to be Jesus. And that is an unfortunate corruption of Masonic ideas. That's a kind of a, a church Trinitarianism that got stuck into the Scandinavian lodges that doesn't belong there. I think that's from the if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong here, I think that's from the influences of the Lutheran Church. This institute that you're a part of, has, have you created it yourself? or? Yeah, we, we started it back in, I think, 1998. Um, and it was just uh, started out as a group of folks getting together on a regular basis for work. And it evolved and changed over time. And uh, it took on some real momentum. And... Uh, so now we have, uh, you know, regular seminars and activities. And if you go on Amazon and type in my name, you know, Mark Stavish, you type that on Amazon, you know, USA. Or you see, uh, and in Europe, I think some of the Europe, like the European Amazon sites, you'll see probably 15, 20 books that I've written. Uh, we've got more coming out. And uh, we have a lot of, we took recently within the last two years, what we've done is we've taken all the old lecture and lesson material uh, that we used years ago, updated it, reformatted it, cleaned it up, and uh, I've been producing a series of extensive monographs. And these are by no means short. I mean, they're they're 
half-length books, you know, 20, 10 to 15,000 words each, you know, they're, they're, they're substantial and on very specific esoteric topics. And uh, they do very well because uh, not only are their size, they're easy to read, but they're, they're designed for someone who has knowledge of the material. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, what, what we did is uh, we recognized that there's a lot of good stuff in my books on alchemy, cabal, and, and out-of-body experiences. So if you've read those, you know, you don't want to get a book and then basically spend a quarter to half your time just going over material you already know. We've all been there, right? We all buy a book and, and really we've read it and we knew 80 or 90% of it. And we're glad we got that last 10%. But after a while, that gets uh, problematic. So what we decided to focus on was specialized material where the reader uh, didn't have to worry about that. And still they could understand what was going on. So that's what we've done. And, and of course on YouTube, I don't know what the number is now. I think it's around 30. I think we have about uh, 25 or 30 audio programs, full-length, multiple-hour audio programs that people can listen to uh, that has our coursework in it. Do you have any good tips if somebody wants to start working with achieving uh, some sort of out-of-body experience? Yes, everything's in between the gates. Everything. Everything. I cannot stress that enough. There's more in there than most people will ever get to. And uh, it is probably the single most important work you can do. You do some spagyric work. You don't make yourself crazy over it. You just make some spagyric tinctures, take them on a regular basis. Uh, and then in the process, also undertake a daily meditation practice and work, work, work on that formation of the body of light. And that is going to serve you better than almost anything else I know. But in the meantime, have some physical exercise too. Don't don't let this just be kind of a, a mental thing. So if you're doing kind of qigong or yoga or running or weightlifting or calisthenics, that's good too. What would you say when somebody says, well, yeah, if you had an out-of-body experience, yeah, but you were just having a lucid dream that you maybe you... We didn't even realize that was just dreaming. You thought you were actually out of body. Well, there is a difference. And, you know, generally when we see an out of body experience, it has to do with an experience in this world. And maybe the best example would be um, someone's on an operating table, they look down, they see the operation, and they're so high up that they can even see different things that are outside of the line of sight or vision of the surgical personnel. You've, many stories like that exist. That would be a genuine out-of-body experience. Uh, seeing someone at the moment of death, that would be a genuine out-of-body experience. Uh, seeing someone um, post-mortem, that might be also a genuine out-of-body experience, clearly for them, not for you. Um, so these things are recorded throughout history and, and many people have had experiences like them or, or the same thing. And that is different from a lucid dream. You have these scientists who try to prove it and they always fail. And I read one uh, experiment they did where they, there was a, a hospital ward where a lot of people often died, but they managed to re resurrect them. So they placed like uh, pictures that nobody could see uh, high up 
and then but they never could nobody of the people who had these saw them but i'm thinking also maybe you know like if you have an audible experience and you're just dying maybe you're not like looking for these images to prove you're having one i don't know if science how how could they prove it and uh, maybe it's not provable well i i don't know what is provable or what isn't but you know and i think that's an interesting effort they made a nice effort you know, and if you look at the Egyptian tombs, they painted a doorway on the tombs for the soul to go through after death and to return to. But, you know, they, that was in, inculcated into the culture from the time they were born. You know, they knew that. Uh, so, you know, having a direction at the moment of death, whether it's staring at a picture of uh, the Virgin Mary uh, and saying your rosary, you know, be with us at the time of our death. Or whether it's doing a like a Tibetan poa practice where they have the image, you know, before them and, and do the visualizations, you know, that's that's just something you have to cultivate, uh, you know, not just you know put a picture up on the ceiling and hope that we get a, you know, we get some kind of response when we when we resuscitate them. Uh, you might, but it's it's a real roll of the dice, as we say. I have this theory that the more science advances the closer it will be will go to the point which is what it is trying to reject i mean like the deeper you go into all this string theory and quantum mechanics eventually it sounds like the mumbo jumbo that they say is like not real you know it's quite ironic i think well science science is is a process it doesn't reject anything science is just provability repeatability Repeatability is what science is. Uh, it's individuals, it's people that try to reject things. And uh, therefore, we have to just be careful about that. You know, al- alchemy is, is that very thing. It is about repeatability. It's about self-demonstration, demonstration to oneself. Um, it is about that interconnectedness between mind and matter and cycles so there's there's a lot of overlap there, increasingly so. Of all the classical alchemists, uh, are there any ones that you would that you recommend that you think are the best ones to to check out and read? Really, everyone you know everyone should be familiar with uh, Paracelsus. That's always good. Everyone should be familiar with the little Basil Valentine and Triumphal Chariot of Antimony. This is standard, and this is good because you know then you can talk to a lot of other people who are working with it. Uh, Nicholas Flamel is very good as well. Uh, and then, you know, after that, you have to begin to uh, kind of uh, pick your path and uh, what you can afford to do because different paths can be very expensive in terms of time and equipment. And uh, you just kind of go from there. Are you working on any... You, you mentioned you were working on it, but can you tell a bit about your next book that you know is coming? Well, we have... Uh, you know, several. One of them is on uh, the concept of egregores. Uh, that's often a topic that you hear bantered about, but is not really well discussed. So we're going to talk about egregores and what they are and pluses and minuses of them. Uh, we're going to be reissuing some uh, older material that we put out 10 years ago. It's been updated and cleaned up and, you know, some essential diagrams added on the vault of Christian Rosenkreutz and, you know, alchemy from a Golden Dawn perspective. Um, they'll be coming out probably in the next few months. And, uh, and of course, uh, 
there's a, a slight a compendium of writings an anthology of some essays that I've done over the years that we're going to see in December. Uh, I'm probably the big surprise, and this is the first time I've announced it, so you get to be the, the announcement, is uh, I'm working on a uh, biography of Joseph Leshevsky, who was uh, a student of both uh, Frater Albertus, the alchemist, and Israel Regardi. And uh, so I'm working on that because he died uh, back in July, early July this year. So I'm putting together a, uh, a biography on him. So you mentioned uh, you can search your name on Amazon, but you, what's the name of the, your own websites? That would be hermeticinstitute.org. And if they type in Institute for Hermetic Studies, uh, that they'll, that's the one they'll get. So it's uh, hermeticinstitute.org, or they can just do a Google search on Institute for Hermetic Studies, or Google search on my name, Mark Stavish, and uh, that'll lead them to it one way or the other. And of course, uh, Amazon is great because that has a lot of things. And we have a blog at uh, WordPress, Vox Hermes at WordPress, and that has a lot of links on it and, and fresh articles too. Cool. Uh, well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, it was wonderful. Check out hermeticinstitute.org or hermetic.com forward slash stavish. That's S-T-A-V-I-S-H. To close this episode, we are going to listen to a track by Jamatar called Unity from the album Space Sounds. To hear more of Jamatar's music, go to jamatar.bandcamp.com. That's jamatar.bandcamp.com. And I'll post all these links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Okay, so that's almost it for this year. Next Sunday, which is the last Sunday of 2016, you will hear a mixed bag of Terence McKenna, which is a perfect way to end the year, I think. Freedom is in the mind. Mm-hmm.